Leah Edgerton, welcome to EA Global virtually. It is awesome to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be here, Nathan. Yeah, obviously we all would have much rather been in person this weekend, but under the circumstances, all doing our part to uh, stop the spread of this virus, I think this is uh, a great alternative. So we have put uh, it out to the community on the EA forum and AMA format, and we've got a bunch of questions for you. So I'm excited just to read uh, the questions that have come from the community and give you a chance to answer, and then we can have a little uh, follow-up conversation as we go. Sound good? Sounds great. And um, just so you know, uh, we will be answering the EA forum uh, questions that we don't get to in this call and written response as well. Awesome. That's cool. Um, cool. So first question, what do you think are the main bottlenecks and limiting factors in the EAA movement? Uh, great question. Um, as we see it, some of the main bottlenecks are around talent and around funding. Um, so when we talk about talent, we mean specifically um, skills like strong organizational leadership, management skills. Those are skills that we think are particularly neglected. Um, there's an organization called Animal Advocacy Careers, which has done some research to identify neglected talent areas. So I would definitely recommend that anyone who wants to dig deeper on that question, look them up. Um, in terms of funding, uh, I think we all know that uh, farm animal advocacy is still a fairly neglected cause area. There's also some um, feedback loops there where the lack of funding makes it difficult for us to attract and retain talent. Um, and so those two kind of feed into each other. Um, in terms of some of the specific skill sets that uh, the movement is still short on, uh, we hear that there's a strong need for more economists, um, social scientists, and policy experts, particularly in the research aspect of effective animal advocacy. Um, another area where we see um, limited um, like bottlenecks to growth um, is around animal advocacy in countries where there's a uh, high population of farmed animals, but a small advocacy community. Um, obviously, the movement is most professionalized within North America and Europe, um, but most farmed animals globally live outside of those regions. Um, so we'd love to see more organizations, more advocates, and more funding going to countries where um, more farmed animals are currently being raised. Um, in general, another bottleneck to um, impact within the effective animal advocacy movement is uh, the lack of research. Um, while there are many more organizations doing research than there were a few years ago, um, there's still a lot of really huge unanswered questions and just a really high amount of uncertainty around what the most effective interventions are. Um, and um, while we are currently prioritizing farm animal advocacy as um, as the cause area within animal advocacy that we think is the the most neglected, the most uh, neglected, the most neglected, the most greatest in scale, and the most tractable. Um, further research could help us better understand how to help other populations of animals, for example, wild animals who um, appear to be suffering in large numbers, but for which we don't know very many tractable interventions to address. Thank you. So we'll go, I think, into a little bit more depth on. Uh, some of that research uh, in a few subsequent questions. But just going back to the funding gap and the ability to attract and retain talent for a second, do you know kind of off the top of your head or, or have a, a sense of what the practical implications of that are for, say, you know, an economist that might be interested in getting into this line of work? Like, does that translate into a, a tangible, you know, salary differential between what they would have and other uh 
professional endeavors? And, and could you give us a sense of what that actually looks like? Yeah, um, so we actually have an economist who's going to be starting at ACE in May. Um, and so we have a little bit of experience recruiting for that type of position. And yeah, certainly I think the salaries within the effective animal advocacy research community are still quite a lot lower than what an economist could expect to make in, in another field. Um, so I think, um, you know, we we still have a lot of room for, for both um, more funding to go to, so towards supporting like more organizations and more positions, but also, um, yeah, definitely the positions within farm animal advocacy and um, in particular the research positions uh, probably need to be higher paid in order for us to continue attracting and retaining high-level talent over the long term. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Well, let's move to question two. Uh, what have you changed your mind on recently? Yeah. Um, I know this is a good EA question. That's what I like to go around asking people at EA Global, so I'm not surprised to see that on the list. Um, so I'm answering this question on behalf of ACE as an organization, not as me as, as an individual. Um, but I think some of the things that ACE has changed our mind on in the past few years are um, our ability to conduct research and um, make recommendations for charities working outside of North America and Europe. Um, when we started, we just felt that our team was too small and too inexperienced to be able to look outside of, say, language groups that we felt familiar with or cultural context that we felt familiar with. Um, but as our team has grown, um, both in number and in terms of our um, cultural backgrounds, um, we've started to be able to um, support organizations working in other parts of the world a little bit better. Another change that we've made recently um, is how we use our cost effectiveness estimates. That's um, criteria number three in our charity evaluation. We found that those were um, quite prone to misinterpretation. Um, also, the uh, basically the imprecision of those calculations based because there's just so little evidence turned out to be not so useful for us in our decision-making around charity evaluations. So we've um, redone how we calculate those. Last year, we did them more on a relative um, scale, so comparing cost-effectiveness of interventions between charities rather than trying to guess um, how many animals per dollar a given charity spares, given the high uncertainty of that calculation. Um, and we're also trying to put more focus on other indicators of effectiveness, like strong leadership, track record of success, healthy culture, sustainable organizational um, structure, that type of thing. Um, in terms of our own strategy, um, we've also made some pivots recently. Um, so because of uh, the growth of many other excellent effective animal advocacy research organizations in our space, like Rethink Priorities or Humane League Labs, just to name a few. Um, we uh, see that there's a lot of really great experimental research and um, observational research literature reviews being done on some of the foundational questions for our movement. Um, and given that there are so many other actors in the space now, we're really trying to focus on what we do best, which is our charity evaluations and our grant making. So our own research questions are chosen this year um, and going forward with a strong focus on uh, research questions that can help improve our own decision-making for our own evaluations and grant-making. So we're trying to kind of narrow the focus there of our own research questions. Um, we've also made a few other changes to ACE internally. Um, we're launching a new operating model uh, next week. We're also switching to a new project management tool. We've also made changes to our internal communication and people management systems. We've hired a managing director um, yeah, last year was my first year at ACE, so there's been quite a lot of changes in terms of our internal operation as well as our strategy. Yeah, I don't know if you would have enough, um, you know, kind of 
experience over the years to answer this question, but if you look back kind of to the early days of ACE versus today, with all these changes and, and all the, the wisdom hopefully accumulated, how much better able to evaluate charities do you think you are now versus in the early days of the organization? Yeah, I, I think there's been a huge um, trend towards improvement. And um, I actually have been at ACE off and on for five years myself. I was in a different role previously. And um, our first director of research is currently serving as a board member. So we, we actually do retain quite a lot of institutional knowledge. Um, and um, yeah, in general, every year after our charity evaluation process, we do a postmortem where we look at what worked well, what didn't, um, what types of questions that we can add nuance on. So our criteria have been an evolving project over the course of, of many years. Um, we've added a lot of rigor. We've gotten outside experts to weigh in on how to best understand some of the different areas. Um, last year, we added a culture survey to be able to um, get information, not just from the leadership of charities, but from, from all the staff members who are willing to share. Um, this year, we'll probably tweak our criteria to better reflect um, whether charities work is a good fit for the particular um, local context. So these are um, criteria that we see as evolving um, as the effective animal advocacy movement learns more and, and gets more research to, to base our decisions on. Cool. Yeah, that organizational culture bit is particularly interesting and not one that I would have uh, thought of, but definitely makes sense now that I hear it. So let's go back now to uh, some cause areas that are uh, a little bit you know, less well understood. So we've got a question around how much uh, resources do you think that the EAA movement as a whole and ACE in particular should be investing in animal cause areas that are quote unquote less mainstream, such as invertebrate welfare, wild animal suffering? Um, how do you think about that? And, and what kind of information are you looking for that might make you uh, think it should be more or less of your overall portfolio? Sure. Um, so like with all EA cause areas, um, we focus our work um, based on what we think is most effective using the criteria of scale, neglectedness, and tractability. Um, so when you th think about um, invertebrate populations, uh, those tend to be very, very high in scale. Um, we also very neglected, you know, we don't really know of many like insect welfare organizations. Um, and um, the, the thing that keeps us from prioritizing them as a, as a top priority is, of course, the, the tractability. Um, and of course, for something like in, invertebrate welfare, uh, we don't really have a lot of evidence currently on the level of sentience of invertebrates. Um, so I think uh, to answer your question specifically around that question, uh, we would put more of a focus on invertebrate welfare if we uh, were more confident in the level of sentience, so that the, the scale of the problem, and then also on the tractability. So if we knew of particular interventions to reduce uh, invertebrate suffering. Um, it's kind of a similar answer that I would have for a um, cause area like wild animal suffering. Um, there seems to be very little evidence around whether wild animals um, have lives worth living or not, whether their lives are net positive or not. Um, so I think there needs to be more understanding of, you know, what do wild animals, you know, that's, that's a huge category of animals, um, you know, how, what, what does their suffering look like and um, how can we understand it? How can we compare it and prioritize among it? And how can we um, find interventions that, that work towards, um, towards addressing it? Um, and so when you consider whether something is mainstream or not, that's not really like a criteria that we would use to, to, to prioritize. Although, of course, um, 
how weird or outside of uh, mainstream a topic is tends to influence the tractability. So, um, for example, if we were to go do a lot of um, media work around invertebrate sentience or wild animal welfare, um, those are topics that are like pretty unintuitive to mainstream readers. And uh, we have to be aware of the effects if we like focus on those. Um, how does that affect the perception of our work around um, slightly more mainstream areas like farm animal advocacy? Yeah, I totally feel that. We recently had a birthday party for our uh, one-year-old uh, baby who is a bit of a EA Global mascot, Ernie. And uh, as part of that, we did a little game where uh, we were going to do a giveaway to a charity based on what he chose. We put a bunch of objects out in front of him. Um, Amy was originally talking about uh, making a donation to a wild animal uh, welfare organization. And I said, you know, I don't think that's going to play with our guests, right? They're not that uh, savvy to this whole thing, you know, even at a high level. Uh, so this just probably seems a little bit too weird uh, to try to explain to them in the course of, you know, a birthday party uh, gimmick. So we ended up going with something a little bit more down the fairway. So it's kind of like farm animals. Everybody, I think, uh, can get that. So, yeah, that definitely makes sense to me. We have given grants to Wild Animal Initiative through our Effective Animal Advocacy Fund. We have done research on wild animal welfare, and um, we still think that's a worthwhile thing to do. Although, yeah, like you said, uh, you know, being strategic about when to talk about it and how uh, maybe a one-year-old's birthday party is not quite the audience for, for such a nuanced topic. Yeah, we had a uh, impossible whopper, which was a very tangible uh, item that everybody could uh, understand as they saw it in physical form. So uh, now switching gears a little bit again back to international expansion. So you mentioned obviously that you know the movement is most professionalized in the United States and Europe. So we've got a question to that effect. Obviously, tremendous amount of uh, animal uh, welfare concerns that are in other countries: China, India, South Africa, et cetera, et cetera. So what do you think are the most effective ways that we can think about expanding the movement internationally? Do you think this should be tackled by existing EAA orgs or potentially new orgs created locally? Um, and also this questioner thanks you for agreeing to do the talk. Oh, well, uh, you're welcome. Thanks for the question. Um, yeah, so um, yeah, I definitely think that there are multiple ways to address this. There's certainly the option of um, organizations that have been successful in one part of the world expanding to other countries, being able to share some of their wisdom, also some of their funding. Um, and then there's also a strategy of supporting groups locally who um, you know, have the freedom to develop their, their, own, um, their own agendas. I think that there's pros and cons to the different models. Um, of course, if you're expanding organizations that are already established, say, somewhere in North America or in Europe, um, those organizations uh, might be able to bring with them stronger management uh, expertise or strategic expertise. Um, maybe they also bring with them a network of funders that can make um, you know, it easier for an organization to get started in another country. Um, but then there's also trade-offs, like how will an international organization be perceived in the local context? And... Um, you know, might having a, a top-down um, strategy from a culture that is different from where you're doing the local work um, be, a, be a bad fit. You know, we don't want to have um, organizations from, from North America pushing an agenda that works really well there, but maybe doesn't work as well in South America or in Asia. Um, so I think this is really important to consider the trade-offs. Um, and then, of course, with supporting local organizations, um, there's there's pros and cons there too. Sometimes having a big international brand behind you can make your campaigns more effective. 
Um, but then sometimes you also want to have a, a brand that feels more local, more homegrown, and that might be better perceived um, by local companies or by local governments. So those are some of the trade-offs I would think about in that type of a decision. Um, but in terms of um, international donors, so if we're talking to organizations in Western Europe and North America, um, I think uh, some of the things to consider if you're considering working in other parts of the world is the, the um, responsibility that we have to um, educate ourselves in cultural literacy and try to understand what we bring with us, you know, as Western Europeans or North Americans in terms of our own blind spots. Um, there's even simple things like language barriers and, you know, trying to make our things more accessible for, for people in, in different parts of the world. Um, so while we do think that there's um, uh, a, um, a good reason for organizations um, in Western Europe and North America to expand to other countries, we think that um, some of the really most effective ways to do that are things that sort of combine some aspects of, of um, you know, bringing in uh, expertise from, from very large professional organizations while uh, drawing on the expertise of locals who, who understand the context and can make really good strategic decisions. Some of the people I've seen do that really well are um, the Open Wing Alliance, which is run through the Humane League, and uh, they're one of our top charities. And uh, the Federation of Indian Animal Protection Organizations is one of our standout charities, and they're um, working specifically to support organizations within India um, on, in being more effective and more strategic and, and um, with training and funding. Uh, we do have a couple of resources on our website for anyone who wants to learn more about this topic. We recently did a roundtable blog post series interviewing some different advocates from around the world on effective international advocacy. And we also have written country reports on uh, India, Brazil, and China, and um, some of the considerations for effective animal advocacy there. Cool. Uh, the Open Wing Alliance had a speaker, I believe, at last, uh, fall CA Global in London, who did a great job. And so that would be a, another resource to check out if you're interested in learning more about their work. Um, so let's change gears a little bit and just talk about how uh, you guys operate as an organization and maybe also how your uh, selected charities operate. So we've got a question around uh, remote organizations, and we're kind of all experiencing that uh, at the moment. But in the in the moment where it's optional to be a remote organization, uh, a lot of organizations have staff retreats, and the questioner is wondering, do you think that that is worth the cost and the staff time? How do you think about that, and how confident are you uh, in your opinion on the matter? Uh, great question. So ACE has been a fully remote organization since we started. We've never had an office. Um, I don't think we have almost, yeah, we have maybe two staff members in the Bay Area, but generally we don't have um, almost any hubs. Um, we have people working in many different countries, and over the last uh, three years or so, we've been doing in-person retreats. So we've been meeting twice a year in person um, in different parts of, of um, the United States historically in order to have a week together to talk about strategy, to, um, to discuss big picture ideas, and to just connect in, in person. Um, we found those to be um, really, really positive addition to our team culture. We found that we generate a lot of really creative strategic ideas. Um, we find it also important for our team culture. We found that um, from our culture surveys that we conduct every six months that uh, our team retreats tend to be one of the most motivating and um, inspiring moments of the year for our staff. So um, in that sense, we think it really adds a lot of value to um, our team's uh, culture and uh, ability to work well with each other. Um, that said, they, they are expensive. Um, I think that um, 
they, they are certainly less expensive than having a year-round office. Um, but I think, yeah, there's, it's certainly important to consider the trade-offs. Uh, we were actually planning to have a retreat the week prior to EA Global, so, so right now. Um, but we canceled that due to the current um, situation with the pandemic. And so um, I guess we're about to find out uh, what, how well a remote retreat works. So, so next week and the following week, we're going to have um, a remote retreat where we meet for several hours a day over Zoom and have our sessions that way. And we've also tried to plan in remote social activities that way. So um, if you ask me again in a few months, I'll be able to tell you about the pros and cons of in-person versus remote retreats. Yeah, cool. Well, that, uh, that information has never been uh, more relevant than it is right now. So um, moving right along, next question is about the effects of your evaluations on the market, as it were, for uh, animal charities. So the question is, are you concerned about any possible negative effects of ACE's charity recommendations? For example, charities might start to over-optimize toward uh, key metrics that you guys have specified or that they've kind of you know established with you. They may begin to compete with each other in somewhat unhealthy ways. Uh, have you seen any examples of that? And do you think that that is something that you should be working to mitigate? And are you working to mitigate those uh, possibilities? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's one that's come um, increasingly relevant over time. So when ACE was founded in 2014, um, as far as we know, we were the only EA organization influencing funding within the animal advocacy cause area. Uh, that year, we tracked just under $150,000 in gifts to our recommendations, which um, it's kind of hard to know exactly, but it seems like it was well under 1% of the farm animal advocacy movement's budget. Um, but if we fast forward to more recent year, 2018, um, that's the most recent year I have, I have um, data for offhand, um, the combined efforts of Open Philanthropy, uh, the Center for Effective Altruism, the Animal Welfare Fund, and um, ACE influenced about $40 million in funding, which is about 25% of the movement's budget. Um, and so obviously that's, that's very exciting. It's very, um, it's very impressive and some, definitely something we want to see a trend continuing of, of EA organizations influencing more funding within the animal advocacy space. Um, it's also really important to consider the responsibility that we have and what types of incentive we might be putting into place with unintended negative consequences. Um, so yeah, we definitely don't want to um, incentivize anything toward like over-optimization for specific um, metrics. That's, that's part of what the things that we've tried to address over the years with the changes to our charity evaluation criteria. Um, so just as an example, I mentioned earlier that we've changed how we did cost-effectiveness estimates um, partly because of their likelihood of being misunderstood, um, but partly because they're not necessarily measuring something very useful. Um, we've moved towards a model of more relative um, cost-effectiveness estimates. Um, and just to, to dive a little bit deeper on there, just to give, a, to give an example, um, while we want, of course, to incentivize for charities to be cost-effective, um, we also want to avoid unintended uh, long-term effects like um, you know, we might, you might, one way to increase that uh, ratio would be to potentially like pay people less, um, but that might have uh, more negative long-term effects like higher staff turnover or inability to attract high-level talent. And so uh, we want to make sure that our criteria aren't incentivizing for like short-term quick fix solutions, but rather contributing to the effectiveness of the movement over the long term. Yeah, we also noticed, um, again, because of the amount of funding influenced by EA organizations, 
that we want to avoid an effect of moving more funding towards just a few uh, large organizations that are working with interventions that have particularly strong evidence behind them. Um, because our, our movement is still at such a young stage, uh, we still have very little evidence on, on what does work. And um, in particular, it's difficult to measure the indirect effects or the long-term effects of the interventions that we're doing. Um, so part of, um, part of how we've tried to address that is by starting the Effective Animal Advocacy Fund. Um, so that fund tries to allocate funding among a larger set of organizations beyond just our top and standout charities. Um, instead of just trying to funnel a little bit of a lot, all the funding to to a few large organizations. So that number that you mentioned uh, toward the beginning there of influencing $40 million in funding, which is 25% of the movement's budget. So just, you know, simple math there, $160 million would be your estimate for the, the movement's entire uh, budget. What's included in that? That seems like... I guess not knowing what's included, I don't know if I think it's uh, small or maybe not small, but would that include things as uh, as broad as like PETA or like how far does that $160 million actually uh, encompass? So that figure um, I actually took from Lewis Bollett's research, so I would ask him for more specifics there. But um, as far as I understand it, that is the um, entire budget of organizations that are focusing entirely on farm animal advocacy. And then I think he also tried to guess what proportion of organizations like PETA's budget went towards farm animal advocacy. So I think, yeah, he did try to take into account, um, yeah, uh, slices of organizations' budget that have more than one program area. Well, yeah, that is, I would have guessed uh, bigger. Uh, so that is actually kind of surprisingly small to me. But that uh, speaks obviously to neglectedness of the, the overall uh, domain. So, wow. Um, okay, well, next question. Uh, I think it's a very interesting one. There's been obviously, uh, across the EA movement over the, no the last, you know, several years, there's been kind of a, an evolution, at least as I see it, from a focus on very provable ROI on your investment. Um, and I always think of kind of cash transfers as like the, you know, very, uh, C-level, like, you know, baseline, uh, for that kind of giving to a, more portfolio-based approach that focuses on kind of power law returns and really looks for, you know, the next big thing. Um, that's often called hits-based giving. So the question here is, what does hits-based giving look like in the context of animal advocacy? Uh, do you think that we should be focusing more on a portfolio of things that, hey, 90% of them uh, might fail, but the big ones will pay off, you know, for the entire uh, set of investments? Um, and, you know, I think you're, everybody probably understands that power law uh, notion, but it is also interesting to observe that oftentimes the, the very best ideas look like bad ideas uh, at first. And there's a there's a quote here, I believe that might even be from like a venture capital fund. Um, so how do you think about all that? And then um, how do you think ACE can, can use what evidence does exist uh, in what the questioner calls an epistemically permissive way, uh, meaning not so rigorous, obviously, but a little bit more... Uh, loose, but still, you know, learning from what evidence is available to try to get some idea of what those big winners might be? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, as I mentioned in, in my response to the previous one, that this is sort of um, what we've tried to address with our Effective Animal Advocacy Fund. So with this fund, we want to um, 
support organizations that are really doing good work, but are not as fit as good of a fit, like you mentioned, for the um, like high certainty, um, you know, sure bets that, that we're looking for for our charity evaluation process. So these organizations are either very small or they have a short track record um, or who work in really important but neglected areas. Um, but who we think are still just as effective a use of funding as our top and standout charities. Historically, through this fund, we funded groups working in capacity building, um, particularly in neglected geographical areas or in neglected demographic groups. Um, we've also funded groups that um, have a really high expected value, um, but we don't really have a lot of evidence yet about whether or not that works. Uh, their approach works. So we're wanting to have a little bit um, lower standards of evidence. Um, we want to also draw on the, you know, the EA principle of using evidence and reason. So if we don't have a evidence, you know, how can we use reason to, to make a guess at, um, you know, what has high expected value, even if we're, we're quite uncertain about the outcomes. So last year, we granted out $1.8 million in grants um, among over 60 groups, and those were working in over 20 different countries. Um, so another um, potentially interesting aspect of this type of giving is that um, yes we're you know we're giving to things that we don't currently understand how they work but we also end up learning after funding them you know how did it work so uh, you know it also feeds into our our goal of gathering more evidence in order to make more um, informed strategic decisions over the long term so the more things we try the more things we learn is there anything that stands out so far as a particularly promising possible hit, or is it just too early to say? Um, it's pretty early to say. We uh, we handed out our first round of grants um, just under a year ago. Uh, we do have a blog post up that we published um, late last year, which is a follow-up with our round one grantees. Uh, we'll be doing a follow-up with a round two grantees soon, and we're also going to be announcing our round three grants um, in the next couple of weeks. Um, we have to do a little bit of a pivot on those because of the the, um, the current uh, pandemic has affected obviously what types of uh, interventions the groups can carry out. So we'll, we'll have a slight delay on that. Okay, cool. Thank you. Um, next question: What would you say to someone who is currently undecided between donating to ACE and to one of ACE's top charities? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, certainly, one our, we want our main goal to remain moving money towards uh, charities that we think are effective that are that are not ACE. Um, so we, you know, as a meta charity, we don't want to be like taking more funding from the movement than we think we are adding. Um, so most of our fundraising efforts actually go towards uh, fundraising for our recommended charities and for our effective animal advocacy fund. Um, but however, of course, we we do have to operate ourselves. Um, we have a small but um, you know, a small budget that we try to use very effectively. Um, one thing I would say to particularly um, audience members from the EA community is that um, ACE has a pretty good platform to, to move gifts towards our recommended charities and towards our EAA fund. Um, you know, it's a, it's a pretty easy message to, to say give money to them, much easier than for them to say give money to us. Um, and last year, in fact, we exceeded our uh, gifts influenced goal by almost $2 million. So um, that, that number seems to be going really well. Um, but we, um, so uh, ACE fell short of our own operating budget uh, fundraising goal last year. And in particular, um, we tend to rely on the EA community to, to fund 
ACE ourselves. Um, that's because mainstream donors don't tend to generally understand the value of a meta charity. And uh, we tend to look more towards the EA community for um, donors who understand the high level of nuance and understand the service that an organization like ACE can um, give to our movement. So um, in general, I would say uh, most of our fundraising efforts are focused on supporting our recommended charities and our effective animal advocacy fund. But within the EA community, we, we make a stronger pitch for ACE because we think that we're more likely to find uh, donors who, who understand the value of our work influencing um, funding towards other organizations. Okay. Um, next question. Which interventions do you think are the best right now? And which less well-studied or newer interventions do you think uh, could prove to be competitive with them? Sure. Um, so based on our current prioritization framework, we think the most effective interventions are those that are focused on reducing farm animal suffering. That's because we think it's a cause area that is um, large in scope, highly tractable, tractable and relatively neglected. Um, so within this within the, the cause area of farm animal advocacy, uh, we look for organizations that are um, working to speed up the development and commercialization of plant-based and cell cultured food products. We also support organizations that are seeking to secure corporate commitments um, to improve animal welfare on farms. And also um, we look to support groups that are leading outreach efforts in neglected regions. Um, we also, um, so in, in terms of specific interventions, those tend to be um, policy work, um, working with corporations, um, institutions, um, and doing uh, campaigns to support animal welfare laws um, at a national and international level. We also um, do place a focus on uh, supporting groups that are doing more research so that we can help answer this question better in the future. So for example, one of our um, standout charities is Faunalytics, who's also doing research on um, effective animal advocacy. So you mentioned there um, plant-based and, and cell-cultured-based uh, uh, meat substitutes. That's one of the things that I am most excited about and fascinated by, really, uh, as well. But one thing that I saw recently that kind of left me feeling a bit confused on the topic was the adversarial collaboration on the effects of eating or not eating meat that was published on uh, Slate Star Codex, which I'm sure everyone uh, already reads. Needs no introduction. Uh, but what that uh, publication found, and this was an adversarial co collaboration, meaning somebody who was already committed to, you know, we shouldn't be eating meat, and somebody else who was, you know, at least, uh, you know, currently thought it was okay to eat meat, and they're going to work together on this question of what is the, the net effect and see if they can publish something that they both agreed on. Their analysis ultimately came uh, out such that they believed that animals that are raised for consumption, but are not factory farmed, um, and they even seem to extend that to cows and, and pigs under kind of current average conditions, they believe that those animals do have lives worth living, and it led to the kind of counterintuitive conclusion, at least from, from my perspective, that by not consuming those animals, in a sense, you harm them because they won't exist if there's not consumer demand for them to exist. Um, and so they came out strongly against eating chicken, uh, but were actually kind of pro-eating these uh, these other meat. So 
I was interested in your take on that. I mean, I don't know if you have a, a, an official stance on it, but does your work uh, engage with that question, or do, do, would you have a, a perspective on agreeing or disagreeing with that analysis? Yeah, that's a really great question, and obviously one that uh, really depends a lot on your moral framework. Um, so at ACE, we try to have our work be as uh, broadly appealing to people of different moral frameworks as possible. Um, and to that end, we have uh, three philosophical commitments, um, which is one, a commitment to improving animal welfare, two, a commitment to valuing empirical research, and three, a commitment to anti-speciesism. So beyond those, we don't take a stance. And so, um, yeah, we, we wouldn't have an official stance on that. Does anti-speciesism imply that you would, so also in that analysis, they sort of have a um, kind of like a coefficient for how much value they would put on a given animal relative to a human. And I think they kind of try to have some sort of like neural correlate, you know, uh, basis for that. But it becomes, you know, kind of a gut feeling of like, oh, a cow is worth X percent of a human and a chicken maybe less and, uh, you know, a shrimp uh, even less so. Does anti speciesism mean that you would reject that kind of analysis entirely and say we're, we're not going to play that coefficient game or how, how do you interact with that kind of thinking? So by anti-speciesism we mean um, uh, yeah we mean basically a commitment to um, taking um, a, a, an individual's interests and well-being um, seriously regardless of its species membership. And so that, that certainly leaves open the option of um, weighing sentience differently or capacity to suffer differently. Um, so, yeah, those are, there, there certainly is some wiggle room to understand anti-speciesism in, in different ways. Some people understand it to mean complete abolition of, of how humans, and of um, yeah, human use of animals, and some people understand it to mean um, yeah, treating preferences with the same uh, level of, of consideration regardless of species membership. Gotcha. Cool. That's a very tough question. And, uh, yeah, one that puzzles me greatly. Uh, okay, cool. Well, we've got just one more question for you. This has been really great. And I, I thank you so much for participating. Um, the last question is, what are some questions within the EAA movement, which you think are amenable to being forecasted? Question. And, um, one, I hope that I, we will see some, some new research coming out on, um, I asked our research team to to field some questions um, in response to that, and here are some of the responses I got back. Um, one question is, will corporations stick to the their animal welfare commitments? So when companies make a pledge to, say, um, reduce uh, to eliminate um, caged eggs from their supply chains, um, how likely do we think that it is that they will do so? Another question that we could model, uh, would be when will specific animal-free food technologies become cost-competitive with their traditional animal counterparts? Uh, we have done a little bit of research on timelines of cultured meat um, coming to market, and I know that some of the other organizations that uh, we work with have done similar research projects. Um, another question that we think could be forecasted would be uh, when will the in-ovo-sexing technology um, that can prevent the... Um, so that's technology where um, you can identify the sex of a chick before it is hatched out of its egg. Um, and so, so hopefully could prevent the birth and then killing of male chicks that are not useful to the egg industry. 
Um, so one yeah, one question for forecasting could be to try to understand when that will come to to market and be um, commercially adopted. Another question would be, um, when will the global production and consumption of farmed animals stop growing? And uh, when will it stop completely? And um, also we could forecast when specific countries or specific states will adopt legal protections for animals, um, whether that's farmed animals or, or otherwise. And um, yeah, other, other questions could be focused more on the impact of the movement. Um, questions like when will um, the EAA organizations collectively have a budget of more than 500 million or of over a billion? Um, so these are the types of questions that, that we can um, think of. I actually thought of one myself as well yesterday when I was um, thinking about um, the role that we can play um, in helping our movement um, navigate the, the um, current epidemic, the current pandemic. Um, one question I thought might be interesting to try to address would be, um, you know, if the organizations in our movement faced, say, a um, reduction of their income by 25% because of the economic situation, um, how long would it take the movement to recover? And so that could help donors make a more informed decision about whether they should be giving higher payouts from their foundation right now or whether um, it makes sense to to hold off and, and grow the movement, say, a, a few years later when the economy is recovered. Um, so those are some of the questions that I got from the research team. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Leah, for joining us today and participating in this. Uh, I know you said that the questions that we didn't get to, and there were a bunch uh, that were still out there on the AMA post in the EA forum, uh, will be answered by the team in text form. So if your question didn't get answered, uh, don't worry, the answers will be coming your way. But again, that's all we have time for uh, today. So thank you so much, Leah, for participating. Um, and we will be right back with more EA Global Virtual right after this.